Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Street Theologian. And today I'd like to take a bit of a break from all of our episodes on sacred scripture and I'd like to focus on a special episode on the Blessed Virgin Mary because tomorrow, December 8th, is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which is a huge feast in the Catholic Church, which celebrates the fact that Mary is without stain or without sin. She was conceived without sin. Later on, we'll talk about this idea. But basically, you could say that Marian devotions is one of the more obvious characteristics of, of being Catholic. In fact, one of the greatest popes of, of church history, <laughs> I think, um, St. John Paul II, had as his papal motto, Totus Tuus, which is a Latin phrase which means all yours. And this is a phrase directed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. You could say that this sort of um, shows a no-holds-barred attitude when it comes to Marian devotion. And it comes from the conviction that Christ himself wants us to love his mother. He wants us to love his mother as, as he loved her himself. Um, as he loved her with all of the love that he could possibly give, um, which means infinite. And, and we want to do the same thing because we want to imitate Christ. And because we are children of God in Christ, and so Mary is our mother. Later on, we'll talk about this idea. But, um, well, the title of this podcast is The Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God and Mother of the Church. And you could say that in this title, it sort of summarizes the basic doctrine on Mary that is um, that we hold in the Catholic Church. First of all, that she's the mother of God she could say is the nucleus of uh, all of the uh, of her identity and the root of all of the other attributes that we give to her the fact that she's immaculate the fact that she's yeah she's blessed the fact that she's virgin meaning that he gave she gave birth to Christ without losing her corporeal integrity and the fact that she's also the mother of the church but before going into that um First, I'd like to talk a bit about Mary in sacred scripture. Um, because I guess it's important to emphasize that um, in the Old Testament, um, there are many female figures that are often interpreted in the light of the New Testament, of course, as prefigurings or prefigurations of the Blessed Virgin Mary and her mission. And we see this first and foremost in the figure of Eve, the first woman. In the Protoevangelium, meaning the first good news that was announced in Genesis 3.15, God promised that a woman, a descendant of Eve, will win over the enemy. And in the light of the New Testament, um, this is interpreted, this woman, descendant of Eve, who will win over the enemy, is interpreted as referring primarily to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was the mother of God, who won for us her redemption. Um, without her yes to the mission God gave to her, we wouldn't have Christ. And in the same way that Eve is the physical mother of all the living, um, Mary is a spiritual mother of all humanity. And this is why one second saint, century saint, um, Saint Justin, calls Mary the new Eve. And we also see Mary prefigured in some of the women in the Old Testament who bore their sons um, through divine intervention. We see this in Sarah um, in Genesis 18 who conceived 
who was barren but to conceive because of um, the grace of God. And also we see this in Hannah in the book of Samuel who conceived um, Samuel, her, her son, who became a, a prophet um, through divine grace. And in fact, the song, of, um, the song of Hannah in the book of Samuel is parallel to and quite similar to the Magnificat that was sung by Mary in the Gospel of St. Luke when um, Mary was praising God for all the gifts that he had given her. And we also see Mary in the figure of the daughter of Sion, which is a sort of um, symbolic personality that we find in the Book of the Prophets, in, uh, primarily the Book of the Prophets. And it's a yeah, it's a symbolic personality, which refers primarily to Israel, but it's also interpreted as um, referring through Mary, because it is through Mary that God renews His covenant to His people through Christ. And among the prophetic literature, the most important texts are chapter 5 of Micah, of the prophet Micah, because he talks about a virgin giving birth in Bethlehem, which is what happened to Mary. And in Isaiah chapter 7, when he speaks of a virgin who will give birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel, um, it's good to take into account that probably, especially among the prophetic literature, um, these references to a virgin was not understood in the same way that we understand it now. For instance, in Isaiah, when he talks about a virgin giving birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel, um, it was interpreted by people as referring primarily to well, the the young wife of uh, of the king who became the mother of the of the next king, who um, and the kings were were supposed to be the the office of um, kingship was like a a mediator of God, like a representative of God. And in that sense, in the in the book of Isaiah, it was understood within this context. But in light of the New Testament. Um, this, um, these prefigurations or, or these figures acquire a different transcendence, um, a different meaning in light of the figure of Christ and Mary. Mm. In the New Testament, some of the more important texts are, well, one of the more, most important texts is um, chapter 4 of the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians when he was speaking about Christ in the context of the history of salvation and one of the main descriptions that he gives to Christ is born of a woman. Um, and this phrase, born of a woman, is very important because it places Mary at the center of God's plan of salvation. That God decided to come to us through a woman. I mean, he could have come to us through some other way. God is infinite. He could have just appeared, you know. But, um, but he decided and he wanted to be born of a woman. He wanted to be born of this, of this particular woman, Mary. Um, so it puts Mary at the center of God's plan of salvation. And in the book of Matthew, um, Matthew, for instance, his infancy narrative, meaning his narrative of the infancy of Christ, is told mainly from the perspective of Joseph. But he does cite Isaiah chapter 7, that same passage we were talking about earlier, when he, when Isaiah talks about a virgin giving birth to the Emmanuel. And so the fact that Matthew cited Isaiah 7, um, we see how he gives a messianic meaning to this Old Testament text. Um, in St. John, um, St. John's Gospel is very theological. Um, it has a lot of symbolisms, and one of the main symbolisms is um, 
is the way he portrays Mary in the context of Christ's adult life. John doesn't talk about Christ's infancy, but in the context of um, Christ's public ministry, Mary plays an important role. In fact, Mary appears twice in the book of um, John. First in chapter 2, which is the wedding feast at Cana, which marks the beginning of Christ's public life when Mary convinced her son to turn water into wine. Um, And the other important event in which Mary appears is chapter 19, which is the crucifixion of Christ, when... Um, which marks the end of his public life. So we see how even if St. John doesn't have to like make references to Mary in every single miracle that Christ did in every single act, we see in the fact that Mary was there at the beginning and at the end of his public life how it sort of signifies how she was always intimately accompanying her son. At the beginning when he wasn't famous yet, no one knew him, but his mother already believed in him. His mother already knew um, his mission. And at the end of his public life, again, when after he became famous and... Another important aspect of Mary in St. John's Gospel is that in these two instances, Christ calls his mother Cana, Christ tells his mother that woman, it's not yet my time um, to work this miracle, but nonetheless, Mary manages to convince him to turn the water into wine so as not to embarrass the the newlyweds in their in their wedding feast. And in the crucifixion, again, Christ calls his mother woman when he tells St. John, Woman, behold your son. And this phrase woman is important because it's also like the title given to Eve. Um, on, on one hand, woman. It expresses in some way her transcendence over Eve for that matter that she is to be considered as the new Eve, um, the new mother of humanity in their spiritual dimension. And, um, well, another important gospel of St. Luke, I guess you could say that among all the gospels, um, St. Luke's is the gospel which talks Annunciation. Remember, every time we pray the Angelus, for those of you who pray it every day, like me, at 12 noon, we recall this scene when Mary said yes to God. And the other scene, which is a Magnificat, which we mentioned earlier, how it um, strikes a parallel with a song of. Um, Sarah, the song of um, Hannah when Hannah found out that she was going to give birth to a son um, and in sacred scripture Mary's last appearance is in the Acts of the Apostles and she appears at the moment of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to the disciples and this marks the beginning of the church 
um, is very beautiful because we see how the church was born um, again through Mary in, in the the mother of the church okay having talked about church you could say that um marian doctrine throughout church tradition is closely linked to the development of christological doctrine in fact the term theotokos which is a title given to mary which is greek for god bearer um, is the greatest enemy of christological heresies because it emphasizes the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ. God-bearer basically means mother, um, but it adds the nuance that she's a mother of God. And if you remember, if you've listened to the other podcast on Christ that we did um, some months ago, uh, well, the greatest Christological heresies tend towards two extremes. To emphasize that Christ was just human, but not God. He was just a prophet, or he was just the first creature, the most perfect one, um, given, uh, created by God, but not equal to God. That's one heresy. And the other is to emphasize that he was God, but not human. That he, was just, he just took on the appearance of humanity. And... Throughout the entire church tradition, at least up to the 5th century, there were several debates and several heresies that came up along these two lines. And and the greatest slap against these heresies is basically Theotokos, the fact that Christ was born of a woman, um, that Mary is the mother of God, because it emphasizes the idea that um, Christ is 100% human because he had a mother, he had a real mother. But Mary really is the mother of, of, of Christ. And also that he is 100% God. That Mary really is the mother of God. Um, so let's talk about that. Um, the, the idea of motherhood, which as we said earlier, is at the nucleus of all of the other attributes to Mary. Although there's no explicit verse in sacred scripture that says that Mary is the mother of God, um, it does affirm that Mary is the mother of Christ and that Christ is God. And therefore, it can be deduced that Mary is the mother of God. And this idea, as we said, is something that is reflected in Galatians 4, chapter 4, verse 4, which talks about Christ as God, Christ as Redeemer, born of a woman, and that Mary is the real mother of Christ. And it also appears in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, which affirms that Christ came into the world according to the flesh, meaning that his birth was something real. It wasn't just symbolic or imagined. And in St. Luke's Gospel, Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord when Mary came to visit her. And in the tradition of the church, um, the notion that Mary is the mother of, of Christ was never doubted before, well, in the early part, before the heresies came up. Um, for instance, um, one of the earliest prayers in the liturgy of the church is a Marian prayer called Subtum Presidium and talks about, like, under the protection of Mary, um, we can do anything. <laughs> and in Subtum Presidium, this Latin prayer refers to Mary as Santa Dei Genitrix, um, Holy Mother of God. So we see that even in the early church, even among the first Christians, the conviction that Mary really is the Mother of God, which translates into 
other important consequences that they really believe that Christ is God and that really believe that um, Christ is human. Mm. We see this reflected in this prayer. In fact, this prayer is still prayed in the liturgy until now. Um, so we see a continuity in, in this tradition. And in fact, in one of the most important heresies against Christology called Historianism, which um, claims that um, there are two persons in Christ, um, Christ God and Christ Man, and that Mary is just the mother of the human Christ but not the divine Christ. Um, this um, Nestorius um, was a bishop who was the first one who started this heresy. In fact, he banned the prayer of the Subdum Presidium. And this heresy was condemned in the Council of Ephesus in 430 AD. And in order to condemn this, this idea that um, that um, Mary is just the mother of the human Christ, Christ is not fully God and fully human, but uh, um, the Savior Christ is the, is the God Christ who um, united himself with the human Christ. Um, this was condemned by the Council of Ephesus. And again, um, this condemnation was reiterated in... The Council of Chalcedonia in 451 AD, which emphasized what they call the hypostatic union in Christ, meaning the union of the human and divine natures in the one person of Christ. And again, in the Council of Chalcedonia, it speaks of Mary as the mother of God according to his humanity, since God existed before before Christ, before, before Mary. And um, in an important document of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, Lumen Gentium. Um, Lumen Gentium refers to Mary as having received the word of God in her body and in her heart to show that her motherhood isn't just something physical, but it's also a spiritual one. That there was a real motherly relation between Mary and Christ. And another important um, doctrine on Mary is the virginity of Mary. Um, and this doctrine of virginity, this Marian dogma, refers to the virginity of Mary before, during, and after childbirth. And the Second Council of Constantinople in 553 AD speaks of Mary as always virgin, sempre virginis, implying that not, not only did she conceive as a virgin, but that she continued to be a virgin. And this was always reaffirmed in the councils that, um, that came afterwards. And the idea is that the virginal conception of Christ is something that we have a scriptural basis for. Um, we find this in St. Luke's account in the Annunciation when it says that the Holy Spirit will pass over Mary and that the power of Most High will overshadow her. But Mary's response was, I know no man, which is interpreted not only as a present condition of virginity, um, but that it's a stable reality which shows that she has chosen to dedicate herself to God in virginity because in fact, by that time, she was already betrothed to Joseph. So... When we speak about Mary's virginity, we speak of it not only as a physical reality, but also as a sign that points us to the reality of Christ's own personhood. It shows us the special status of Jesus, um, and it also underlines the fact that um, the entry of Christ into the world is the work of God. Mm. And in the childbirth of Mary itself, um, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel says that the son will be born holy, which connotes a holy childbirth without pain or impurities. 
and it is a birth that does not alter the virgin the mother's virginity because Mary being born without original sin cannot lose her physical integrity so this is the basis for speaking of um Mary as virgin even during childbirth and after childbirth as we said the doctrine on Marian virginity is before during and after after childbirth um the conviction that Mary did not have relations with Joseph is a conviction that comes from one of the one very obvious manifestation of this which is the fact that Christ had no siblings and at the end of his life he entrusted his mother to John if he had a brother he could have entrusted his mother to to a brother but um, in, instead he entrusted his mother to John and it's true that the gospels do speak of Christ as having brothers and sisters but uh, this terminology brothers and sisters is a common phrase that's used to refer to not just your brothers and sisters with the same mother but like to cousins to relatives so it doesn't necessarily mean that christ had brothers and sisters um, because if he did as we said um could have entrusted them to to them could have entrusted his mother to them at the time of his death on the cross but he did not mm. and the second important marian dogma apart from the fact that this other. The second important Marian dogma is the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which, as we said, is a feast that we're celebrating tomorrow. And this dogma was proclaimed by Pius IX in 1854 with the bull Ineffabilis Deus. And this is something that's supported by sacred scripture. So basically, the dogma says that Mary was conceived without original sin, that she never had sin. And we see this, for instance, in Genesis 3 in the Proto-Evangelium when God speaks of an enmity between the devil and the virgin. And to be in enmity with someone is to be like, not be friends with someone. <laughs> and this shows that um, if the virgin is um, in enmity with the devil, then it means that she's in a state of friendship with God, which means she's in a state of grace. And this is only possible if the person is without original sin. So... The Proto-Evangelium shows that the Virgin, who is to become the mother of the Messiah, is a person who lives in a state of grace. And this supports the idea that she was conceived without original sin. And another um, scriptural basis for this is um, the scene of the Annunciation in the first chapter of Luke, in which the angel Gabriel calls Mary full of grace. And full of grace is supposed to being in a state of original sin. So this means that Mary lived in a state of union with God, which is incompatible with a state of union with the devil or a state of slavery to sin. Mm. Actually, in the medieval period, there was a really long debate regarding this doctrine. Um, as you see, the doctrine was proclaimed in the 19th century. And although it has always been held by the common tradition of the faithful, what we call the sensus fidelium, um, that Mary is conceived without sin. Like people, Christians from the very beginning um, saw Mary as a pure creature, a creature that was special, preserved by God from um, something that has stained the rest of humanity. And although the census fidelium always sustained this, certain theologians were a bit doubtful. For instance, even St. Thomas Aquinas um, thought that Mary's exemption from original sin could jeopardize the universality of Christ's redemption. And that's why for St. Thomas, there must have been a, a moment when she had original sin, otherwise... 
expression of Christ is for everyone. That Christ died for everyone. Christ redeemed everyone. He's everyone's redeemer. Um, but if Mary was without original sin, then that would mean that she was exempted from redemption. However, well, this was resolved by an argument of one theologian called Don Scotus, who developed the theory of the preventive redemption, and he, which actually is a theory that was eventually used by Pius IX in defending the dogma of the Immaculate Conception when the dogma was declared. And based on this idea, um, the Immaculate Conception is the masterpiece of redemption brought by Christ because the very power of his love and his mediation obtained that the mother be preserved from original sin. Therefore, Mary is totally redeemed by Christ, but already before her conception. Mm. It's like, um, imagine um, imagine sin as someone throwing, uh, I don't know, mud at you. The devil throwing mud at you. For us, um, Christ redeemed us by cleaning off the mud from us through his death on the cross and um, through giving himself to us through his love. But in the case of Mary, Christ redeemed her by putting himself in front of her so that the mud cannot hit her in the first place. And that's what Don Scotus, um, well, he didn't, Don Scotus didn't use that example, but he, that's how he viewed the, the whole idea of preventive redemption. And so in, in this case, it doesn't go against the doctrine of universal redemption because Mary still was redeemed, but she was redeemed even before sin could hit her. Mm, another important Marian dogma is the idea of um, her assumption to heaven and this dogma was proclaimed in 1950 by Pius XII with the bull Munificentissimus and yeah, it might sound pretty late <laughs> it's the 20th century already but it's good to take into account that the Feast of the Assumption of Mary had always been celebrated in both the Eastern and the Latin liturgies from the earliest days of the church and according to this dogma the perfection with which Mary is redeemed embraces all the mysteries of her existence, up from her conception and birth up to her glorification, that is, up to the mystery of her glorious assumption into heaven and being constituted Queen of Heaven and Earth. And the scriptural arguments, the scriptural arguments for this go back to the scene of the Annunciation in St. Luke, in which Mary is referred to as fullness of grace. And this phrase, fullness of grace, must also imply fullness of glory in heaven. And moreover, um, death is seen as a consequence of original sin. And as a consequence of this, um, it's reasonable to think that Mary, being full of grace, um, also assumed to he- into heaven um, in that fullness of glory. Um, yeah, so that summarizes some of the main dogmas of the immaculate con- of, of the figure of Mary, that she's immaculate, um, that she's the mother of God, and that she is virgin before, during, and after childbirth, um, and that she assumed into heaven. Or did I already mention that? But another important idea is um, the special participation of Mary in the work of salvation. In... A document called Redemptoris Mater um, by John Paul II in 1987, it affirms the singular role of Mary in God's plan of salvation. And it talks about how in the fullness of time, fullness of time meaning in which God sent His Son, in this fullness of time, 
this fullness of time takes place at the moment of Mary's fiat, Mary's uh, yes to the will of God in the scene of the Annunciation. So if you think about if you think about it this way, her yes is a very a very important moment um, because this yes marks the moment in which heaven opened to mankind, if you might call it that. This fullness of time that we talk about is the yes of Mary. And so the work of redemption is inextricably linked with Mary's correspondence to God. In the first point of um, Redemptoris Mater, I'd like to read, In the Incarnation, she encounters Christ and Mary indissolubly joined, he who is the Church's Lord and Head, and she who, uttering the first fiat of the New Covenant, prefigures the Church's condition as spouse and mother. And Lumen Gentium.62 also calls Mary Mediatrix, which at the same time affirms that um, Mary has a special role in the grace given by God to his church. Of course, considering that this has to be understood um, in a secondary way without taking away or adding anything to the dignity and efficaciousness of Christ being the one mediator. The only mediator is Christ, but uh, um, we can talk about Mary as like a secondary mediator in this sense um, because it is because of her that God gave himself to the world. God, God's self-giving to the world happened through the mediation of Mary, through her yes. Um, and Lumen Gentium, the document of um, the Second Vatican Council, point 61, also calls Mary our mother in the order of grace because she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity in the work of the Savior in giving back supernatural life to souls. And this document continues, the maternity of Mary in the order of grace began with the consent she gave in the faith at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross and lasts until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Mm. Yeah, the document continues, but uh, it's important to consider how Mary is also the mother of the church in the sense that she is the mother of the members of Christ. Of, of She's our mother of each one of us, having cooperated by charity. Um... That faithful might be born in the church who are members of that head. And I'm reading from Lumen Gentium, point 53. Wherefore, she is hailed as a preeminent and singular member of the church and as its type and ex- excellent exemplar in faith and charity. The Catholic Church, taught by the Holy Spirit, honors her with filial affection and piety as the most beloved mother. Mm. And aside from being mother of the church, Lumen Gentium also calls Mary the type and model of the church because of the way she lived her faith and obedience to God. And so the, f- per- the figure of Mary shows the perfection of the church and its model for receiving the word. And I have an interesting background for this um, document, Lumen Gentium. During the Second Vatican Council, um, some members of the council were considering coming up with a separate constitution on the Blessed Virgin Mary because the major constitutions of the, of the Second Vatican Council are... Um, one on the church, Lumen Gentium, another on the church in the world, Gaudium et Spes, um, another in Revelation, the Verbum, and one on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. So therefore, but during the council itself, they were thinking they were thinking of having another document on on Mary. But in the end, what happened was that the the entire final chapter of Lumen Gentium. Um, was dedicated to Mary because this also underlines the fact that um, Mary's figure as mother of God is inextricably linked to her figure as mother of the church. And so 
a huge chunk of Lumen Gentium, the entire last chapter, chapter 8, is de- dedicated fully to Mary. And if you think about it, it's um, so much like her, so, so Marian, um, to not want to stand out above all the rest. Like, I'm sure Mary would have wanted to be part of that document in Lumen Gentium instead of having her own um, document in the church. But, well, that's just me. Um, anyway, just to end this um, podcast, one consideration that I've been thinking about is um, how sometimes some people might find Catholic devotion to Mary excessive. Like Catholics are so Marian. Uh, many of us pray the rosary regularly. I pray the rosary every day or m- more rosaries if I can. <laughs> And some Some people might find it excessive, but if you think about it, um, the interesting thing about Marian devotion is that it had never actually been excessive. Like you cannot find um, any heretic Marian cult. At least you can find any significant heretic Mar- Marian cult anywhere. I mean, in fact, the greatest heresies of Christianity um, were actually very non-Marian, which sh- sh- sort of goes to shows how Mary never, never leads you to a straight path like with mary you're always on a sure path um studying with studying theology with a marian devotion for me it's like the greatest um remedy to the tendency towards arrogance when it comes to reading the word of god when it comes to studying revelation um mary's a sure path and i'd like to end with um a quote from Another saint, another contemporary saint named Saint Jose Maria Escriva, and he says that um, in one of his books called The Way, in point 495, he says, We go to Jesus and we return to him through Mary. And, and that's it. Um, thank you for listening. And in the next um, episodes, we'll continue with the series on sacred scripture. <laughs>